Jesus before Pilate tonight in John's Gospel. Been working our way through it for some time and continue tonight uh, with these verses from John chapter 18, verse 28. So, John 18, verse 28. And we read that then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not want to enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Let's just come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you that you give us your word and you give us your spirit to give us understanding. So Lord, we ask, take this word tonight and speak into each of our hearts through it. Help us to understand more of Jesus, of your purposes for Jesus and of how these purposes should then work their way out in our lives. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You, know, you don't have to look around the internet for too long to find both horrific and also ridiculous courtroom stories. Well, we're going to look at the most horrific case of courtroom injustice in just a, a few minutes. So as most of the other horrific cases contain details that aren't too pleasant, let me just start off tonight with the ridiculous. And here it is, a Washington, D.C. judge took his pants, translate trousers, to be dry cleaned at a local family-owned business that he used regularly. According to him, the trousers they gave back to him were not his trousers. And this was a failure of the satisfaction guaranteed sign in their shop. So he decided to sue them for $67 million dollars. Not $67, 67 
million. Later enough, he was gracious to drop the case down to only 54 million. Only. In court, this judge, Roy Pearson, passionately described his mental suffering, inconvenience, and discomfort at being deprived of his pants. His description of the actions of the dry cleaning business was, and this is a quote, that never before in recorded history have a group of defendants engaged in such misleading and unfair business practices. Seems to have slightly lost his sense of proportion. He must have really loved his pants. The case ended with the judge deciding in favour of the dry cleaners. And finally, to end it all, the owner of the dry cleaners held up a pair of immaculately pressed pants. And facing the jury and Mr. Pearson, he said, These are your pants. Roy Pearson ran out of the courtroom with tears running down his face. To this day, he still denies that they are his pants and refuses to accept them. Some people have funny lives. Now, that was a, a ridiculous, trivial court case, of which, sadly, there seems to be more and more nowadays. What we, though, are going to look at now is the most serious, horrific, unjust court case in all of human history. This trial of Jesus here before Pontius Pilate. But before moving on to try and dig at least a little bit beneath the surface of what we find here in John's Gospel and then apply it to our lives today, let me first just share some, some background details to, to try and help us to understand just, just what's actually going on here. To begin then, John in his Gospel doesn't give us any details of Jesus' prior appearance before the Jewish Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas, the high priest. These are covered in the other Gospels, but not by John. All he says here in verse 28 is then, that is, following this, the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. However, what John does do here in, in this section we're looking at tonight is focus much more on Jesus' trial before Pilate and gives significantly more detail about this trial than any of the other Gospels do. Why? Well, because, as we said previously, as we said last time we looked at John's Gospel, because of John's purpose at this point in his Gospel. That is, he doesn't want to just slavishly repeat what the other Gospels have already said. Rather, what he wants to do is highlight the kingship of Jesus, the nature of the kingdom of Jesus, and of his kingdom authority. And all the time underlining that though here evil men think they are in control, think they have got Jesus just where they want him, yet in reality, in fact, the exact opposite is the case. For everything that happens here, all that happens here, is central to God's sovereign purpose to save mankind, to glorify His Son. Evil men do their worst, but God takes it and weaves it all into His perfect purposes. With John here 
state in this by, by using a, a technique. He puts this across using a technique that's, that's very common in his writing. That is expressing things in, in such a way that there are different levels of meaning in what's said here. There's the obvious surface meaning, but with a deeper level of meaning that's there to be found just beneath the surface by those who seek for it. And John here also, in this, makes, makes frequent use of irony. Frequent use of a, a kind of dry wit, pointing out that here men say and do things at times that actually mean and achieve that which is very different from their intention. Just one final word of introduction about basically where all this took place. And it's reckoned to, to be most likely that, that Jesus' trial by Pilate took place either in Herod's palace on the western wall of Jerusalem or in the fortress of Antonia in the northwest of the city. And, and that fortress was actually connected to the temple where this meeting of the Sanhedrin took place by, by steps into the temple's outer court. Now, now the actual situation is that the usual Roman headquarters in Israel at this time was actually on the coast in, in Caesarea, a hundred miles or so from Jerusalem. So you see, when the Roman government and the Roman army came into Jerusalem in force, which they usually did for big celebrations and festivals like, like Passover, they did that just to remind the local population who actually was boss. Whenever they did that, they set up temporary quarters in Jerusalem, usually at one of the two locations we've just referred to. But you know, even the furthest one away was only 400 yards, five minutes walk from the temple where the Sanhedrin met. So here then, Jesus moves almost instantly from the hostile, aggressive attacks of the Sanhedrin to the cold, clinical question of Pilate. But let's just look at this now. As we said, in more detail, a little more detail, this trial of Jesus before Pilate, beginning with an unhappy collaboration, which I would suggest is a, a fairly accurate assessment of the state of play regarding the relationship here between the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of Israel, and Pilate, the chief representative of their Roman rulers. For at the personal level, to say there was no love lost between them that would actually be a gross understatement. For the Jews, you see, in general, never mind the Sanhedrin, they despise Gentiles. They despise non-Jews into whose camp the Romans certainly fell. They saw them, they, saw, they see people like us as unclean, unacceptable to God, unworthy of coming into God's presence, and therefore as people who they should keep as far away from as possible. To save them from any cross-contamination. All Jews thought of this. With this being multiplied by people at the Sanhedrin who saw themselves as the, the kind of cream of the crop. And this, of course, is what actually lies behind their unwillingness to go into Pilate's palace where Jesus has been taken and held for trial. With this leading to what if it wasn't for the actual context, would be, as you try to picture it, the, the almost semi-farcical situation of the Jewish leaders standing outside, probably on the steps, and Pilate 
kind of trotting between them and Jesus, asking him questions and then referring them back to them. But please, tonight, don't get the idea that the personal animosity here was all one-sided. For though Pilate here does seem in one sense to accommodate the strange sensitivities of this Jewish leadership, yet the reality is that in this situation, he had to. But with there being plenty of other evidence that Pontius Pilate was far from being a friend of the Jews. To the contrary, one writer in John's Gospel's assessment of Pilate is that he was a brutal leader whose atrocities against the Jews were legendary. Now this was true to the extent that that what was in an incredibly cruel age, various representations were made to Caesar in Rome about Pilate's unnecessary provocation of and brutality towards the Jews. And these were upheld on more than one occasion with finally Pilate being dismissed from his position in Israel and called back to Rome to give an account of his actions. With this being prompted, no doubt, not by any particular affection in Rome towards their Jewish subjects, but more because Pilate, by his actions, was provoking unrest, causing trouble that they had to deal with, trouble that cost them money that they didn't want to spend. And actually, the best historical information that we have available to us suggests that the end game for Pilate was that when he returned to Rome, he was ordered to commit suicide by the Emperor Gaius. But if you put together all the various information we have about Pilate, then you get the kind of picture of him suggested by Donald Carson. This is what he says, historians have come to know him as a morally weak and vacillating man who, like many of the same breed, tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. You see, Pilate was the classic weak man trying to pretend he was strong and seriously overcompensating. But can you imagine how, at the personal level, the Jews, particularly this Jewish leadership, can you imagine how they must have irritated him? Here he was at last, representative of the mighty Roman Empire in one of their conquered lands. Here he was at last, a weak man, in a position of incredible power, only to find himself despised by those he ruled over. Can you imagine how galling this must have been. So there is definitely no personal warmth between Pilate and these Jewish leaders. And yet, here they are, forced to cooperate. They're forced into an unhappy collaboration. Why? Well, the Jewish leadership needed Pilate if they were to achieve their aim of having Jesus put to death and so discredited and finally out of their way. The Romans, you see, they guarded one power above all others in their provinces. And that was the power, the right to put a man or put a woman to death. Local native governments like the the, the Sanhedrin in Israel, they had lots of powers that were divested to them, but the power of capital punishment was reserved for Rome 
and its representatives alone. The only exception was if somebody desecrated the temple, and incidentally that was something the Jewish government, the Jewish leaders were constantly trying to accuse Jesus of, but not even with their twisted logic could they convince even themselves, never mind the Romans, that this was justified. So you see, they needed Pilate. If they were going to put Jesus to death as they longed to, they needed Pilate. And Pilate, though he despised the Jews in turn, still he was wary of them. He was wary for his later question and makes it clear that the Jews, again, that they'd twisted what Jesus said and cunningly they'd chosen to focus in on one issue. And so Jesus, they said, he has claimed to be king of the Jews. Now you see, if there was one thing in the Roman Empire that they were incredibly sensitive to, it was any threat to Caesar's authority. Any threat to Rome's imperial authority. That was stamped on. And any official of the empire, such as Pilate, who was found to have taken no action against such an occurrence, well, let's just say an early end to his career would be the very least of his worries. So there was collaboration here. But it was unhappy collaboration And just how unhappy this actually is, is demonstrated by the way that Pilate greets this this Jewish delegation. Verse 29, he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? Because you see, the fact that the Roman soldiers had been present at Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 18, 3, so Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers This, plus the nature of Pilate's questioning of Jesus, his first question, are you the king of the Jews? All of this makes it clear that Pilate had already been in conversation with the Jewish leadership before Jesus' arrest. You see, there was no way a detachment of Roman soldiers would make an arrest like this without Pilate's prior approval. And these questions that he asked demonstrates that he's actually working to an agenda set by the Jews. So you see, Pilate asked this question, but Pilate knows exactly what charges they want brought against Jesus. And he knows exactly what verdict they want. The reason then why he asks this question is to humiliate the Jews. It's to force them to grovel. It's to force them to admit that they need his permission before they can do what they so want to do. And the Jews, you see, that they know what's happening. They know what Pilate's doing. Which I believe is the reason for their reply, which is at best subtly, if not downright insolent in the context of an audience with a man who does rule over them and hold the power of life or death. Verse 30. If he were not a criminal we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate achieves what he set out to do. Because figuratively, figuratively, he forces them to their knees. Verse 30, Pilate said, Take him yourself, sorry, verse 31, and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. What an unhappy collaboration. This was indeed. 
But do we see here also the deeper significance that John points to here? Do we see the irony of this situation? Do we see how here God takes the evil of men at its worst and sovereignly weaves it into his purpose to point to his glory? For here, these Jewish leaders refused to enter Pilate's palace because they feared that to do so would make them ritually unclean before God and therefore unfit to eat the Passover lamb. Unfit to share in this, this great festival, a festival that was designed to remind them of that lamb that had had to be sacrificed, of that blood that had had to be shed in order to cleanse Israel from sin, that God might set them free from their slavery in Israel. And yet, you see, that Passover lamb had to be slain again and again every year. It had to be slain. And that Passover lamb was given and was designed to point toward the ultimate Lamb of God. Designed to point to the one whose blood would be shed, but not just for a certain people at a certain point in history, but for all mankind through all eternity. The Lamb of God who sets his people free, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin, now and forevermore. Jesus the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. God become man, sinless God, who became a man in order to die for our sin and set us free. You know, what a total, utter tragedy. That these men here are so set on making themselves right with God by their actions, eating the Passover, and yet at the same time, They turn their back on. Worse than that, they trample on the Lamb of God given by God to them as a gift that can be theirs through faith. And yet, you know, it's a tragedy that continues on today. Continues on. People of other religions who think that by rituals, by sacrifices, various good deeds, they can make themselves right with God. People who attend Christian churches who also think that by church attendance, by good deeds, generous giving, that they can make themselves right with God. None of this can get us right with God. Once we do these things, once we are right with God, and it's an expression of love and faithfulness, then that's wonderful. But they don't make us right with God. The only way to get right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Lamb of God who died on the cross to pay the price of our sin. The other example of irony here where we see evil men unwittingly do the good work of a a sovereign God is found in the, the determination of these leaders to have Jesus executed by the Romans and therefore inevitably because of that executed by that Roman form of execution, crucifixion. Now you see, they wanted this because they thought this would end finally and forever any further talk of Jesus as Messiah. Because the Old Testament taught, and it was held as true throughout Judaism, that a man who died on a tree, a man who hung on a tree, a man who was crucified, was by suffering that fate demonstrated to be under the curse of God. 
I mean, that's what Deuteronomy 21, 23 says. It says, Cursed is any man who is hung on a tree. So you see, they thought that by having Jesus killed in this way, that finally they've got him. Never mind of him being thought of as Messiah, his name and his reputation would be finished forever. But what they failed to realize, what Jesus had taught but they'd failed to take in, was that this was actually a death, this was a fate that Jesus had taught and prophesied would be his. For example, in John 12, 31 and 32. And that this was a faith that Jesus, not happily, because he endured such suffering, but that he willingly embraced. On the cross, he became sin. He took upon himself the curse of God. The curse of God against our sin. That our sin might be paid for. That we might be set free from our sin. Jesus became a curse. But he did it for us. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how clearly then at the cross... The evil acts of men achieve the glorious, sovereign purpose of God. So in the trial of Jesus, we find an unhappy collaboration. We also see some unsettling questions, I believe. Unsettling, that is, not for Jesus, not for the one question, but for Pilate who asked the question, and for those Jewish leaders who stood behind him and in a sense whispered, in his ear. And for me, there are two main questions here, out of which everything else in this conversation we find here emerges from and hinges on. The first we find in verse 33. Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, now Jesus first makes it clear that, that he knows who's behind this question. And he knows just what they're trying to achieve by it. That it's the Jews who are trying to use this, to twist this, to try and make Jesus into a rebel against and so an enemy of Rome. But Jesus' answer, though, is an unsettling answer because it is basically yes, but no. Yes, I am a king. But no, I'm not a king. As you understand it. For I'm not a king who rules by this world's power. I'm not a king of military power who rules over governments and lands and nations. But rather, I'm a king of the truth. I'm a king of the spirit. I'm a king who comes to reign in the hearts of men and women as they come to me in faith. I'm a king who is involved, whose people are involved in this world's affairs. But they're involved not by seeking power, not by seeking to dominate and to rule, but rather by seeking to love and to serve and transform. And Jesus finishes this answer with a a statement in verse 37. He says, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
And this is Jesus' challenge, which leads Pilate then to ask his second important question. Verse 38. What is truth? Pilate asked. Now, in this context, and in the wider context of the rest of John's Gospel, it's clear what Jesus means by truth here. That truth is about God, who is the ultimate expression of truth. That Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is truth enfolded in human form. That God's truth is revealed in him. And that through faith in him, we are offered the opportunity of a personal relationship with the God of truth. As Jesus famously said in John 14.6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says to Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me, what he's basically doing is he's issuing a challenge. He's given Pilate an invitation. He's given the one who is his judge on this earth the opportunity to become his follower. What he's saying is, put your trust in me. Come to me. And through me, come to know the God of truth. Pilate's answer in the form of a question, what is truth? It's quite simply a rejection of Jesus. You see, his heart, his life is so full of is this little world's plans and ambitions. So full. Too full for him to have time, he's saying, to think of things like God, like truth, like the possibility of a relationship with God. Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So as Pilate refuses to listen, so he proves that he's not among those whom the Father has given to the Son. Well, finally, in the trial of Jesus, finally we find an unjust decision. And this we find here in the the final verses of of, of this chapter. And it all starts so well. This Pilate announces that he's found no basis for these charges brought against Jesus, showing at least that he'd understood that Jesus was not the kind of king that the, the the Sadducees would try to convince him of, who would offer any threat to the political power of Rome. And Pilate could have left it there. He could have. Wouldn't have pleased the Jews, but he could have done it. But he didn't. Why not? Well, of course, in this, we see again the sovereign hand of God fulfilling his purposes. At the human level, though, there are a number of of possibilities. That The best, I believe, is that Pilate... You see, he wanted the Jewish people to make this decision so that no future blame from Rome could ever fall on him. And he knew that Jesus previously had proved to be tremendously popular with the people. And so he believed then that this crowd would vote for Jesus. They'd vote to set him free. How he miscalculated For it's obvious that the crowd that had had gathered here were 
supporters of the Sanhedrin who'd been tipped off, who'd been alerted to what was going on. So the vote then went very differently to that which Pilate anticipated. And so he then is forced to make the most unjust decision in all of human history. For Jesus is condemned, while Barabbas, who verse 40 were told had taken part in a rebellion, someone then from the Jewish perspective who was a patriot and freedom fighter, from the Roman perspective a violent rebel, a terrorist, but certainly from any perspective a man with blood on his hands. Barabbas is set free. And here again, John piles on the irony. If you see, Pilate had been afraid of setting Jesus free of be, because of fear of being seen to take a threat against Rome lightly. And yet here, he does set free a man who actually had taken part in violent rebellion. This then was the trial of Jesus. A trial that finished with an unjust decision. But you know, tonight, there's still another decision to be made. There's still another choice to be made tonight. A choice to be made by each one of us with regard to Jesus Christ. We have to decide. Are we going to choose the way of Barabbas? Are we going to choose in our lives the way of this world? Making this world our treasure. Making this world our priority. Making sure that we get our share, that we grab for ourselves in this life what we can. Is that going to be our choice? Is that going to be the the way we live our lives? Or are we going to choose Jesus? Are we going to choose faith? Are we going to choose a relationship with love? Are we going to choose a life of love and service? You know, when the call goes out, who are we going to choose? Jesus or Barabbas? What answer are we going to give? Not just by our voices, but more importantly, by the way we live. By the grace of God, may our choice be Jesus. To know him, to love him, and to serve him. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you again for the truth of your word, for the challenge that it brings, for the way that it again just makes it so clear the the choices that we need to make in our lives. Lord, help us tonight to choose Jesus. May it be Jesus. May he be our choice. This we pray for the glory of his name. Amen.